It's Thursday, June 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio and Motley Fool Rule Breakers, Simon Erickson. And from Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman. Happy Thursday, guys. Hey, Chris. Hello there, Chris. We got an IPO to talk about. That's always fun. Oh, yes. Love IPOs. <laughs> we do. We love the hot IPO. <laughs> um, we've got a few other things to talk about. Uh, before we get to the hot IPO, let's start with some news from yesterday that continues to ripple into today, and that is TripAdvisor, which on Wednesday announced it was expanding its partnership with Marriott. So now, uh, I guess later this summer, people who are on TripAdvisor.com looking for hotel rooms will be able to directly book any of Marriott's, I don't know, they have more than 4,000 hotels, something like that, any of those rooms without having to leave the TripAdvisor website. And David, shares of TripAdvisor up around 15% yesterday, up another 3% today. How big a deal is this for TripAdvisor? I think this is a really good sign. It might not have an immediate impact financially, but this really validates everything that TripAdvisor is doing with their instant booking initiative. So, Starting last year, TripAdvisor launched this instant booking platform where essentially, uh, when you're researching and planning a trip on TripAdvisor, before last year, TripAdvisor would just export you to external sites like uh, Expedia or Priceline. But it makes sense for TripAdvisor, it makes sense for users to be able to book a hotel room on TripAdvisor rather than having to leave the site. So over the past year, they were slowly gearing it up, but you could tell that management saw this as a as a big long term opportunity because because it is. Uh, so bringing on a huge player like Marriott, where you have 19 brands, you have over 4,000 hotels, it validates that TripAdvisor is a serious player in that space, uh, and that a huge chain like Marriott sees value uh, joining TripAdvisor. So I think it's it's a big big deal for the company. Like I said, you might not see a huge financial impact right away, but long term, I think this is a gr- the start of something that's uh, could have a huge impact on TripAdvisor. So TripAdvisor gets a cut from any bo- any room Marriott room booked directly on their site. Yeah. So rather than getting a cut by exporting a user to Expedia or Priceline, TripAdvisor essentially eliminates the middleman of Expedia or Priceline and keeps it all on their site. So yeah, TripAdvisor would get get a cut. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they they work out the rates, but essentially they they'll make a deal with with Marriott where they get X percent of uh, a room that's booked on their platform. All right, Simon, let's get to the ripple effects here. How long before another? Because presumably, if I'm on TripAdvisor's site and I am actually on their site whenever I'm planning a trip, looking at reviews, etc., I have to assume that Marriott hotels are going to be pushed up higher because it's in TripAdvisor's interest to push them up higher because they want me to book through that. How long before Hilton comes knocking on TripAdvisor's door and says, "We want some of this"? That exact question, I think, is why the stock was up fifteen percent yesterday. Because the the ripple effect from this is, you've got a Hilton. I mean, you know, any other hotel chain would be interested in doing something like this. They don't want to get left behind. But then, even any kind of vacation property could could have implication of this. What if you could book a Disney World trip directly on TripAdvisor now? And I think that the thing that Marriott was so excited about with this, from their perspective, is it builds a relationship with their prime audience before they even book the trip. You see good reviews from Marriott in San Francisco, so you book that because you saw the good reviews. It already develops that expectation of going to Marriott's because you, you built that relationship on the TripAdvisor site. So I think that's the right question of, can this be a bigger platform in the future as other Marriott-type properties come on board TripAdvisor? Now, on the flip side, and David, you mentioned Priceline and Expedia. How how concerned should they be about this? Well, they're interesting. This dynamics. is basically cutting out 
the middleman. And what's funny is that those middlemen are currently TripAdvisor's biggest customers. So Expedia and Priceline uh, made up 46% of TripAdvisor's sales in 2014. So you have it's kind of awkward when you start to compete with your main customers, which is <laughs> what TripAdvisor is doing. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch in the coming years, and that, that should be one of the main things that, uh, that investors watch uh, in the coming years. But really, booking is where the opportunity is at. Like Up to this point, TripAdvisor, with their user-generated reviews uh, and all, all the reviews that their users are leaving, they, they have the, the trip planning and research. They have that down. The booking segment is what they've been exporting to, trip, or, uh, to, to Priceline and Expedia. By keeping that all on their platform, TripAdvisor, I think, will be the, in the most powerful position uh, in the industry. So right now, Priceline, Expedia, they're bigger than TripAdvisor. They have more resources. But I think TripAdvisor, with that network effect that they have with the user-generated reviews, they have such an active community right now. As they start to expand into this booking segment, I think Priceline and Expedia, they should be worried, looking and not necessarily in the next year or two, but looking out three, five, ten years. I think TripAdvisor is in a stronger position here. And just to add to that, too, there's more value to a customer for an actually booked reservation than just an advertisement for something like a Priceline or something else that's sitting at third party. So, more value to customers. Uh, TripAdvisor is getting better rates directly from Marriott from stuff like this, too. All right, yeah. let's move to the hot IPO of the day, and that is Fitbit, the maker of wearable fitness trackers. Went public this morning, stock up 55% at one point. And so, well done for. Fitbit, they raised more than $700 million, so I would call that a successful IPO. It's the biggest tech IPO of the year so far. But, you know, now I always sort of feel like when a company goes public and they're so excited, and they should be if they're raising money, but I also feel like it's a little bit like draft day in the NFL. It's like, (laughs) congratulations, you've been drafted. Now you've got to play in the NFL. Now you've got to be a public company. Competing in the case of Fitbit, competing with the likes of Under Armour and Apple, you want a piece of this, uh, Chris? I would say that Fitbit's <laughs> IPO really stepped it up, but I would warn for investors to look before they leap. Nice, beautiful. <laughs> Couldn't help it, guys. Well done. <laughs> um, I'm a little un- uncertain about this one. I mean, you know, it's a tech hot IPO. It's now the company's at about a six billion dollar market cap, you know, valuation, uh, which seems a little rich to me. Um, Noted three things about Fitbit that, that I'm kind of a little bit more bearish about. Uh, but first, this is really tough to differentiate, and everybody's trying to get a, a, a share of this wearables market. You've got competing products from Microsoft, from Garmin, from Jawbone, from a whole bunch of competitors that basically do the same thing. They're counting your steps, they're monitoring your sleeping, stuff like this. Some of the higher end stuff has GPS, but there's not a whole lot of differentiation of what any one of those does differently than the others. The other thing is there's really no recurring revenue model from this. You know, it's basically a hardware play at this point. No one's paying for the software or the apps that go along with it. So it's hard to monetize over the long term. And then the third thing which really concerns me right now is that your your power users for this don't really care. Um, you know, if you're looking at the the marathoners and these really hardcore trainers, they've got their routine set up. They don't really need a do-it-yourself, you know, robo coach to help them, which is kind of what Fitbit's doing. So that kind of concerns me when your your kind of your key demographic is is kind of removed from the value that a, a product like this is bringing. On the plus side, unlike some recent companies that have gone public, Fitbit is actually profitable right now, so they do have that going for them. But their sales growth has been insane too. I, I looked at um, the the prospectus, and in 2011, their sales were 14.5 million, so you know, kind of kind of low. Last year, it was 745 million. Uh, so that's just incredible growth. So the company 
they are riding a trend like wearables. It's it's a huge um, growth opportunity right now in the tech space. But I, I agree with Simon. I think Fitbit has a product that uh, is really in danger of being commoditized sooner rather than later. Uh, I kind of look at Fitbit as potentially being the next Garmin, where right now they, they specialize in something. It's really cool. It's it's really popular, like GPS systems were 10 years ago or so. And Garmin was a great investment for a long time. But over the past five years, as phones ha- have their own GPS, you don't necessarily need to get a separate GPS anymore. And I think as smartwatches and other wearable devices become more popular, the technology that Fitbit has won't necessarily, you won't need a separate device for what Fitbit does. You can just use your watch or even your phone you can use in some cases today. So I see Fitbit as more being the next Garmin rather than being the next Apple. Yeah, Brian Hinman was on uh, the show recently, and he was, he was the first person I ever knew who had a Fitbit. And I thought it was pretty telling that he was, you know, even before the company had gone public, he was like, no, I'm not interested in this. Mm-hmm. And I can't. I can't help but um, go back to the fact that Nike got out of this space altogether. They tried to make it work, and they decided, you know what, we're an apparel company. That's what we do best. It's not to say that there won't be winners in this space, you know, whether it's Apple or Under Armour or Microsoft or, or you know, you know, or even Fitbit for that matter. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was pretty telling that Nike, for all of its success, said, uh, "This is kind of the business we're in." But not so much that we want to keep pouring money down this hole. I, I do like Under Armour's approach to this space, yeah. focusing more on the social media, that network aspect, because I think that's a lot harder to commoditize than the, the physical hardware. So, if, if there was one company I would bet on in this space, it would probably be Under Armour, because I think when you're when you're working on on the hardware, it just I I think within a couple of years it'll become very commoditized, and I think it'll be really difficult for Fitbit to continue anything close to the growth that's seen the past couple of years. Under Armour's got that brand already established with you know physically fit demographic. I, I think mm-hmm. that I would second that. That's the best play for this. Yep. Later tonight at ten o'clock Eastern, CNBC is premiering its new documentary, The New High Extreme Sports. Uh, Carl Quintanilla from CNBC is the reporter and host of it. He was on uh, the Motley Fool Money Show recently. Talking about this, uh, David, uh, you and I both got a chance to see an advanced cut of this. Uh, what was your takeaway from this? Obviously, GoPro is featured heavily in this, and this is, you know, for for those who didn't hear the interview with Carl, this is a look at the rise of extreme sports, and in some cases, we're talking about really extreme sports like base jumping, mm-hmm. uh, and you know where people are. Literally jumping off a nine thousand foot cliff uh, with a parachute, and they've got a GoPro camera strapped to their head. Um, in other cases, we're talking about uh, things like Spartan Race, mm-hmm. where it's you know it's a five mile race, a ten mile race with obstacles in it. That you know, I'm never going to go base jumping. I could see signing up for a Spartan Race here or there, maybe. But you watched it. What did you think of it? Well, to, to your last point about the uh, Spartan Race. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, a stat that was mentioned in the documentary, is that more people today will run these alternative runs, so Tough Mudder, the Spartan Race, than uh, run marathons or triathlons combined. I was stunned by that. I never would have guessed that. But that shows that extreme sports and extreme fitness is becoming mainstream. It's already pretty mainstream. That's a great thing for companies like... uh, GoPro, uh, maybe even Under Armour, Nike, these apparel companies, or in, in GoPro's case, enabling people to capture these experiences. And then you have the, the rise of social media. People love to capture and share experiences of them doing something that's 
pretty pretty unique. Whether it's like running through, uh, like you know, r- running through mud or getting electrocuted in one of these races, whatever it is, <laughs> people love to share experiences like that. That it, you know, it's not your everyday thing. So I think uh, GoPro is in a great position uh, to benefit as extreme sports become more mainstream. But I thought that was a really interesting stat that people are already running these races more than they do your typical triathlon or marathon. Yeah, I I definitely recommend people check it out. It's it's I think it's one of the best things that CNBC does is these type of primetime documentaries. Uh, there are a lot of angles to this story. Um, one of them having to do with startup tech companies in Silicon Valley and and going to Hawaii to do kiteboarding in this environment, which is sort of half VC fundraising and half learning how to kiteboard. And one of the one of my takeaways was. Uh, one of the comments that uh, one of the VCs makes, which is that, look, if you're going to pitch a company, if you're going to pitch your startup company for funding, and you're going to go into a boardroom and you've got your PowerPoint presentation, there's a lot of stuff you can fake, mm-hmm. you, like from the standpoint of your personality and that sort of thing. It's really hard to fake <laughs> your personality when you are learning a brand new, challenging sport. And in, in the case of kiteboarding, you're face planting in the water or the sand. And you, you really get to see well, who are these people who are running these startups. Because if you're a VC, that's something you want to know. Yeah, that's one of the most important things is, is you know, the people are what make companies, well, often are what will make or break a company. So rather than spending 30 minutes in a boardroom where you have a prepared presentation, yeah, get get out in the water, you know, do do kiteboarding and all sorts of other stuff for a weekend, then you really find out who are these people, who has that drive that you need to succeed as an entrepreneur. So no, I, I think it makes sense. It's really interesting to see this element of extreme sports being integrated, uh, you know, into the investing world and then all sorts of uh, other areas uh, in our lives. And I think it's a trend that we'll continue to see in the in the coming years. So check it out if you can. Uh, Ten o'clock tonight, the new high extreme sports on CNBC. Uh, it's it's really great stuff. Speaking of Hawaii, our man Simon Erickson just back from Hawaii. You and your lovely bride got a little R and R. So good for you. You got a little bit of a tan going on here. I'm peeling. I burnt <laughs> and I'm peeling. It's it's brutal out there. In Did this you summer. learn nothing about SPF 50? Did you learn nothing about covering up out there? Chris, put the suntan lotion on, reapply in the middle of the day, and I still got burnt to a Chris. Pasty. No yeah. way to win. Any? Uh, I'm assuming you can't shut off the business part of your brain, even if you're sitting on a beach relaxing. Any takeaways from your trip to Hawaii? You are right. The fool is so ingrained in us that we're always thinking about it from investing perspective. I do this in the grocery store too, and I'm looking at stuff. But <laughs> my my takeaway from an investing perspective was interesting about Hawaii. It's an it's an isolated island chain, obviously, and uh, they don't have many of the same. It's it's not as easy to get stuff out there as it is here. Um, and one of the things that I noticed, um, which you know, I was really glad to see, is that everyone's going solar there. Electricity rates are very expensive. Four t- a buddy of ours just moved out there, and they said that their rate per kilowatt hour of power was four times as expensive as when they lived on the mainland. Uh, and the result of that is that everyone's kind of doing these distributed generation uh, electricity things like solar. And so my takeaway from that is that you know this is kind of a uh, an isolated use case. It's proving out that this works, especially as power rates are getting higher. So that was my takeaway. Does anyone have a foot on the ground there uh, in the way that like? So when I was in Arizona earlier this year, I just saw Solar City vans everywhere. Hmm. Um, is Solar City do they have any kind of presence, or is there a competitor? Absolutely, they are. In fact, Chris, I saw the Solar City van 
we were out on the highway. I took a picture of it. Whoa. And and let me tell you, this guy was booking it out there. He was in a hurry to go out and install. He was speeding on the on the highway. So is that, business I must mean, be good. If you're a shareholder, is that what you want to hear? That the guy driving the Solar City van is just speeding down the highway? He's just for, being efficient. For know, better or for worse. Yeah. I was going to say, cutting costs, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but the highways in, in Hawaii are not really akin to the highways in South Dakota or Montana, which are just flat and straight forever. Oh, it was an adjustment, too, because everyone's driving about 10 miles below the speed limit on the highways, and the highway speed limits were about 45 miles an hour for most of the time. We're in D.C. up here. We're used to a completely different <laughs> dynamic, so getting out there was an adjustment, to say the least. All right. Well, glad you had a good time. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.